The United Kingdom is currently reeling from the news that Queen Elizabeth II has died. Her death is a historic event, and I wanted to mark the moment with a special episode instead of our regular episode. I want to mark the fact that the head of state, who has reigned for 70 years, longer than Victoria, is now dead. She was queen before millions of us were even born. There have been hundreds of thousands of people who were born when she was queen and died when she was queen. She lived long enough to transform her image multiple times to eventually become a national treasure and grandmother to the nation. This special episode has some philosophical musings and some of my own speculations, but as usual, I leave it to listeners to weigh the evidence and draw their own conclusions. I do talk about reparations and the Koh-i-Noor diamond, but they aren't really the focus of this episode, and are more things to think about. Obviously, I had to do this at very short notice, just as I was recording the Darwin episode. So that's why this is as late as it is. Queen Elizabeth was born on the 21st of April, 1926, only 25 years after the death of Queen Victoria. Her father, George VI, was born in 1895. Does that show you just how close to the Victorian era she actually was when she was born? 1926 was the year Scottish inventor John Logie Baird invented the television. It would come to define Elizabeth's reign. Unlike Victoria, Elizabeth would be in the homes and pubs of her people up on screen. As the BBC History Archive states, quote, The coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, broadcast live on 2nd of June 1953, was the event that did more than any other to make television a mainstream medium. More than 20 million people watched the service on television, outnumbering the radio audience for the first time. The BBC knew the event would be popular, based on the reaction to the limited broadcast of George VI our nation procession, but could not foresee that it would mark the coming of age of television as well as the modernisation of the monarchy. The coronation brought the nation together as 10.4 million people watched in the home of friends and neighbours and 1.5 million watched in public places like pubs and cinemas. The BBC coverage of the event included cameras installed inside Westminster Abbey for the first time to show the coronation service. The Queen gave her permission for this departure, against official advice, revealing the monarchy's willingness to move with the times. Television commentary in the Abbey was provided by Richard Dimbleby, with seven other commentators, including Bernard Brandon and Brian Johnson, providing coverage along the processional route. The BBC Coronation coverage was broadcast around the world. In the United States, 85 million people watched recordings of the highlights, whilst in Germany, all 11 hours of coverage were transmitted. Reaction to the broadcasts was overwhelmingly positive. With competition from ITV only three years away, the BBC had established an early lead as the trusted and reliable broadcaster of national events, end quote. This was in the face of sustained opposition 
from Winston Churchill and other members of the establishment who didn't want television and who thought the monarchy should remain distant from the people. Elizabeth received the advice with uncharacteristic coldness and refused to give in. The ceremony would be televised, she decreed. In modern Britain, she became the most instantly recognisable face on TV. 1953 was a big year. Rationing from World War II was finally ended in Britain. Princess Elizabeth herself had remained in London during the Blitz, risking her life like every other British citizen in the capital. She trained as a mechanic. According to the World War II Museum website, quote, when Princess Elizabeth turned 18 in 1944, she insisted on joining the Auxiliary Territorial Service, the ATS, the woman's branch of the British Army. For several years during the war, Britain had conscripted women to join the war effort. Unmarried women under 30 had to join the armed forces or work on the land or in industry. King George made sure that his daughter was not given a special rank in the army. She started as a second subaltern in the ATS and was later promoted to junior commander, the equivalent of captain, end quote. Buckingham Palace itself was hit by a bomb during the Blitz and the ATS had 335 members killed in action in the United Kingdom by the end of the war. They did dangerous, often thankless jobs, like operating searchlights, supporting anti-aircraft guns, and checking ammunition, and running supplies to the defence batteries, even during air raids. I do have to sometimes remind people, especially from the USA, that the United States in WW2 was a nation at war, whereas the United Kingdom was a war zone. There were British civilians who were estimated to have seen as much heavy ordnance fire in London or Portsmouth during the Blitz as a WW1 soldier might have seen in an artillery barrage. Even allowing for wartime propaganda, the sense was that Princess Elizabeth had paid her war dues like everyone else, and she retained a lifelong interest in mechanics from her ATS days, often fixing her Land Rover when it broke down. On VE Day, she sneaked out of the palace at night, dressed in her uniform, with the cap pulled down, and partied with her people to mark the end of the war in Europe. It made her one of the few heads of state in the world with active World War II service experience. The war had ground the nation into poverty, and, unlike Germany and Japan, there was little in the way of helping hands. Instead, it was the beginnings of imperial retreat, but there was also domestic rebirth. The British aerospace industry was world-leading, at least before the British government stabbed it in the back and then sold it out to American corporations. Central heating was rare, ice often formed inside windows, and damp, unheated houses killed many. Coal fires were normal, and the nation thrilled with the news that Edmund Hillary and Sherpa Tensing were the first to conquer Mount Everest. Shops remained local, with grocers, bakers, butchers, and even milkmen delivering the milk daily. Elizabeth, the press, and politicians wanted to use her as a symbol of a renaissance, 
the second Elizabethan age, it was called, a chance to make a new Britain with links to the past, but now a young nation full of invention and industry. I really need to emphasize that modern Britain treats World War II as a creation myth for the nation. It's almost as if our old history ended in World War II, and everything after that is the footnote or less important scribbling of a young country. The disconnect intellectually is vast, much like France pre-revolution and France after. It is why it is sometimes really hard to get modern British people to engage with pre-World War II actions, because they just don't feel as if it is quite the same nation. Interesting, perhaps, and nice to remind people how old some of the pubs are, to visit the Tudors and some castles, and quote a little Shakespeare, but not quite the same nation. Elizabeth's accession and coronation were deliberately aimed at creating this disconnect, but also claiming the historical continuity of the monarchy. The old ruins of the past, levelled cities in the bombing, were going to be rebuilt into the new nation with an NHS and an end to wartime suffering. Empire was gone and the Commonwealth replaced it. Many modern commentators, especially in post-colonial territories, have real trouble with this distinction, which to some seems entirely artificial. But the Commonwealth at the time of the accession was not seen as a continuity of oppressive or imperial or colonial structures. Rather, it was a post-empire political utopian with many of the Commonwealth were eager to see the new queen on her tours, and even claim her as distinctly theirs. To quote an indigenous minister in Australia, quote, We, the original Australians, are second to none in loyalty. The blood of the Aboriginal race was on the shores of Gallipoli and France, Neuron and New Guinea, as proof of their feelings. She is our queen, just as she is your queen, end quote. There were Commonwealth representatives from all over at the coronation, including Queen Salote of Tonga, but there still remain imperial overtones in the First World Tours. The Queen met representatives of the Maori people at Watangi, the spot where the original treaty had been signed between the Empire and the Maori. Others had no attachment to the Commonwealth and saw it only as a rebranding of Empire at worst or at best, a hangover from colonial oppression. Still, in political terms, the coronation tour was a roaring success. Elizabeth understood that, above all, the monarch had to be seen. Lacking real power, it relied on presence, image, and behind-the-scenes influence. Oceans of memorabilia accompanied the coronation and the tour. Newspapers pushed patriotic messages the grim austerity of the post-war years began to give way to invention and consumerism. Above all, Elizabeth had learned the trick that Victoria had learned, for which few other British monarchs or politicians had managed, the trick of making the nation think she was just like them, even if she was different. Prime ministers could come and go, but Elizabeth could be the symbol of whatever the viewer wanted. She could be the kindly grandmother to the nation, the symbol of stability, the middle-class tweed jacket 
and Wellington boot-wearing pragmatist, the young girl, princess who became queen and grew up with you, a focus, point of patriotism, or of slightly edgy internationalism, her concerns for the environment and her skill at international diplomacy were incredible for British soft power. For every dodgy despot she shook hands with, there was an Obama or a Mandela to have to tea, or even a Paddington. Her outfits became favourites for secret symbol spotters. For instance, when she met Trump, she wore jewellery given to her by the Obamas. Her understanding of PR was brilliant, so why wouldn't she do a helicopter jump with James Bond at the opening of the Olympic Games? She understood the power of television, of distinctive outfits, and she used them endlessly. The Queen's speech was a Christmas fixture. Even if you didn't watch it, one of life's iron certainties was that she would give a speech at Christmas, whilst the viewers snoozed or ate quality streets. The Queen and the NHS became symbols of modern Britain, both seemingly timeless. For many, she was the girl who came to the throne when they were children, and they have grown up with her death as a reminder of their mortality. For others, she was the stable rock in one of the few remaining UK institutions that actually still works. The list of famous people she has met is legendary and almost endless. Her reign covered 30% of the existence of the United States. She has met 13 presidents, starting with Harry Truman in 1951. The only exception was Lyndon Johnson, for reasons I haven't been able to establish. She already knew Eisenhower well from her World War II days and sent him a recipe for drop scones, which he had developed a taste for. She and Reagan bonded over a shared love of horses, but her feelings for presidents and prime ministers were always kept discreetly hidden. As for the celebrities she met, it is more a case of who hasn't she met. For example, she's met Marilyn Monroe, Bridget Bardot, Jean Kelly, Kirk Douglas, Sophia Loren, Raquel Welsh, Sir Lawrence Olivier, Ava Gardner, Elizabeth Taylor, Harrison Ford, Halle Berry, Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Brian May, The Spice Girls, almost all of the Bond actors, lots of the cast of, Jake, of Game of Thrones, Jennifer Lopez, Angelina Jolie, Dame Anna Winter, Miley Cyrus, Joan Collins, Hugh Jackman, Kate Winslet, Kylie Minogue, Will I Am, Sir Elton John, Bill Gates, David Beckham, Uma Thurman, and George Lucas. Little anecdotes collected around her in place of real knowledge of the discreet Queen's feelings, along with triumphs and tragedies. We know she sensibly loved gin, and her favourite cocktail was a gin and Dubonnet. She also loved hamburgers made from venison, shot on her estates, or poached salmon. Sandwiches were served crust-free, and chocolate raspberry icebox cake was a huge favourite, with leftovers sent ahead by train when she travelled to ensure no cake was wasted. Breakfast was typically marmalade on toast, and she avoided potatoes and pasta when possible. All in all, she ate well, but fasted often, with only a very light evening meal. Elizabeth committed to the idea of the Commonwealth, not a British Empire Mark II, but an attempt to keep international links 
with some of the post-colonial territories as they became independent nations. Each member of the Commonwealth is recognised as an independent sovereign state. About 15 of them retain the Queen as head of state and are therefore Commonwealth realms, not just Commonwealth states. A nation stops being a Commonwealth realm automatically if it becomes a republic or appoints another monarch, but can remain a Commonwealth state if it wishes. The last official head of the Commonwealth was Queen Elizabeth. At the time of recording, it isn't clear if King Charles III will take the position, or possibly Prince William, but other suggestions have been put forward. Elizabeth was also an internationalist. She maintained close ties to France, knowing full well they were a close friend and ally, and made many private trips there. She adored Paris and was fluent in French. Her international connections enabled the projection of British soft power out of all proportion to modern Britain's actual economic performance or military might. She visited over 100 countries and was more widely travelled than any other previous British monarch. Certainly, Canada and France were her favourites, with 22 and 13 visits respectively. She's hosted 112 state visits and was patron of over 500 charities. All in all, she was extremely busy. She never needed a passport or driving licence though, and famously insisted on picking up the Saudi prince in her Land Rover, knowing he and the Saudis hated women driving. She took him on a fast-paced course, and he begged her to slow down, so she put her foot down and speeded up, and left him clinging to his seat. Oh, and she owned over 30 corgis during her life. For now, there is the morning and the detailed plan Operation London Bridge to follow. Ten days of national mourning, an enormous state funeral, and numerous activities to transition King Charles III into the role. Official documents must be changed, new coins, new stamps, new flags issued, government buildings will have to replace photos of the Queen with the King, barristers will have to change from QC to KC, royal finances have to be split up. There are crown estates held for the nation. These include Buckingham Palace and the various profits from the estates. Then there are the personal fortunes of the family members, which are passed down privately, but are pretty much immune from tax. There's no need to use complicated tax evasion or offshore hidden accounts when your Prime Minister kindly passes a law in 1993 making it illegal for you to pay inheritance taxes on your personal royal wealth. The famous Fabergé egg collection is safe. King Charles has kindly said he will voluntarily pay income tax like his mother did, though he isn't required to do so. Charles will inherit a tax-free personal fortune of £750 million, in addition to the royal estates that are held for the crown. He gets the Duchy of Lancaster, personally, which gives him a private income of £22 million a year, up from the £12 million or so he got when he was merely the Duke of Cornwall. His personal fortune is estimated at around £513 million, and every year it grows. He will also inherit the personal castles of Queen Elizabeth, including Balmoral, purchased and built 
by Victoria and Albert, then passed down as family property instead of being part of the Crown Estates. The Crown Estates themselves are worth over £15 billion. Victoria and Albert could never have dreamed of such wealth. The estates are held by the Crown and it is illegal to sell them. Each year, they make around £406 million profit and 25% of that goes back to the estates, with the rest going to the Treasury. Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk might have more paper wealth, but they can never match the deep intergenerational wealth of the Crown with its castles, estates, rents and enormous legal protections. I think we also need to burst the fiction that the monarchy is just a figurehead or a purely ceremonial institution. It really isn't. The monarch has immense power and privilege. King Charles isn't legally required to have a passport or driving license when he travels or drives. As sovereign, he enjoys sovereign immunity, which is common with many heads of state worldwide, granting him immunity from civil claims in court. In fact, he will be exempt from many laws under the doctrine of crown abdication. This goes far beyond normal sovereign immunity for serving heads of state. According to the Guardian newspaper, quote, sometimes referred to as crown immunity, crown application is the notion the British law does not apply to the crown unless expressly written to do so. Crown encompasses the government and the monarchy as well as various state and royal estates. The government interprets it to also include the monarch's private identity. End quote. Many of the crown application situations give the monarch as a private individual a quite staggering level of exemption from laws. Investigations by the Guardian have shown that many exemptions were sought for the Queen's private estates at Sandringham and Belmoral. One of the exemptions was that the police would not be allowed onto Sandringham or Belmoral estates to investigate crimes without the express permission of the King or Queen. No warrant or other power could override this without an express law in Parliament. If the police suspected illegal hunting, pollution or even murder, they must ask nicely. And if the answer is no, that's it. It is similar to if the President of the United States was to allow Congress to make him personally immune to things he does as a private citizen, not just as President. Imagine if the government kindly made Joe Biden the man immune from fraud offences and that the FBI couldn't search his home even if they had a warrant. Records have shown that the Queen repeatedly refused to let environmental inspectors have access to a stretch of river that provides lucrative fishing rights by way of expenses licenses to keen anglers with deep pockets. It is quite striking how many of the exemptions specifically relate to the financial interests of the Queen in her private capacity and how many aimed at keeping environmental duties from affecting her lands. Not only did the Queen not have to pay tax, but she was immune from having to provide any information 
or statistics about her private wealth. Other exemptions mean it is illegal to search the estates for looted objects, although the royal family have always denied there are any. Some is just chucked into legislation, along with the kitchen sink, of course. It is unlikely Queen Elizabeth or King Charles are interested in pulling out people's teeth. So having an exemption from the requirement to be licensed to practice dentistry is hardly a constitutional scandal. All in all, there are over 160 Acts of Parliament where the private royal exemption is applied, including in employment and anti-discrimination legislation, which doesn't apply to the royal household. According to a Scottish government memo, there have been instances where the Queen was shown legislation in advance under the doctrine of royal consent and it was changed to be more acceptable to her. Whilst the monarch can't change legislation or refuse royal assent to a bill becoming law, the king has the power to have behind-the-scenes input during the early stages and indicate whether it is acceptable to him, a piece of constitutional power that is not well advertised. The Crown also has overseas dependencies that operate outside UK law and facilitate money laundering and tax evasion on a truly global scale. Putin could not have looted Russia without British lawyers, Crown dependencies and British overseas territories. Reform of these areas is long overdue and not just constitutional reasons but for the basic practical reason that it is financing extremely dangerous opponents of Western democracy. The debate over republicanism in Australia will restart and many other nations will question the role of a British monarch as head of state. The Crown caused a constitutional crisis once before in Australia and many modern Australians ask why they retain a semi-medieval head of state from a land thousands of miles away. Other Australians have more traditionalist views and the debate will continue. Increased anti-British and especially anti-English sentiment combined with increased anger over colonialism makes the old-style PR of the monarchy less attractive. Many young Kenyans, for instance, are indifferent to the distant British monarchy whilst many of the older generation remember brutal oppression of the Mau Mau rebellion by the British military. Royal visits and the purging of historical records haven't destroyed these memories. King Charles III will have a much harder task in creating a new image for the monarchy than his mother faced at her accession to the throne. Modern Britain is a nation in absolute decline with little hope for the future. With the last link to the older, more prosperous Britain gone, the UK faces little besides isolation from Europe, the loss of trade and status worldwide, a failed economy and a political system that is breathtakingly corrupt. With food and energy in short supply, the reign of King Charles III is likely to be almost as unlucky as his more famous ancestral namesakes. What is left in Britain is the feeling of uncertainty. There's political change to come, of course. There's more. When Elizabeth was crowned, 
The United Kingdom was a place of optimism. The white heat of technology and the swinging 60s were just around the corner. British ships filmed the seas. British planes ruled the air. British engineers remained in demand around the world. It was still an imperial Britain, retreating from empire in sometimes bloody struggles, in other areas almost in decent haste. But it was a more peaceful transition than many empires managed as they collapsed. Many critics view Elizabeth and the monarchy as representatives of a uniquely evil empire. Whilst I've long criticised much of the British Empire, to directly blame Elizabeth seems odd, especially compared to the Sumerians, Aztecs, Neo-Assyrians, Stalin's USSR, Mao's China, Belgium and other empires whose rulers had far more direct control than Elizabeth could ever dreamed of. Many in Britain and abroad do want a deeper conversation about colonialism, return of artefacts, including from the Royal Collection and perhaps reparations. Some campaigners view all colonial associated artefacts as de facto stolen, even those legally bought at the time. Much of this criticism is valid and should be addressed, but there are also a lot of enormous historical inaccuracies and half-truths thrown into the pot. Return of the Elgin marbles would be an easy and obvious step. Working out the ownership of the Koh-i-Noor involves a blood-soaked history and competing claims from the royal family, Pakistan, India and Afghanistan. Long before it became a jewel in the British royal crown, the Koh-i-Noor was first mentioned when it was set in the peacock throne of the Mughal emperor Shah Jahan in Delhi before the city was looted by Nada Shah and the jewel was taken to Afghanistan along with so much gold and loot that it took 700 elephants to carry. This was not a jewel held in common for the people in some kind of peaceful utopia before the British arrived. It was the blood-soaked token of extreme wealth power. Over the following 70 years in Afghanistan, it changed hands many times and always involving murder and bloodshed. Eventually, it was seized by a Sikh ruler, the powerful soldier Ranjit Singh, who kept it in the Sikh kingdom in the Punjab. Technically, this brought it geographically back into India, but India, as a unified political entity, did not exist. The Sikh kingdom was an independent kingdom. A lot of British people wanted the diamond very badly, basically for greedy reasons, but so did a lot of Afghans. When the British and Sikh kingdoms went to war, the jewel was eventually gained by the British after they forced the young defeated Sikh Maharaja Dulip Singh to sign it over to them, and so onward to Victoria and Albert. With the Punjab annexed into the control of the British, the jewel was firmly taken by the British royal house, much as it had been by the Afghans and Sikhs before. It could be symbolically given to India today. There is no Sikh nation to return it to, nor were the claims of ownership by the Taliban accepted. The ruling Mughal Empire is long gone too. Some British people 
would counter-argue that the jewel has always changed hands by conquest and murder, and that it's been a British possession for longer than it was an Afghan or Indian one. Many find it strange the modern world insists some objects can never be owned by anyone outside the territory where they were historically created, as objects have been taken as spoils of war and trade throughout human history worldwide. At some point, things have changed ownership, they argue, and time has passed. Historical connection to a region isn't a trump card. No one would argue the modern Italian state has a claim to Roman artefacts dug up in Syria or on Hadrian's Wall. So why is the Koinor different? It is easy to say the Koinor was stolen, but it's not like it was creating wealth or feeding the average Indian, Afghan or Sikh. It was a luxury object of lust and greed for kings and emperors. And if returned, it will sit in a display case, making little difference to the wealth of real people. Of course, other campaigners who want the jewel acknowledged as Indian and sent there are outraged by what they would see as cavalier dismissal of colonial looting combined with outright racism. For them, what the Indian nation chooses to do with the jewel is not the point. The point is it is theirs and was stolen from them, and so is the decision how to use or display it. The jewel has often been described as cursed, and debates around it are heated to say the least. For now, it will remain in the crown and pass to King Charles. He is highly unlikely to get involved in any further debate on it, especially given the dire situation of modern Britain. Personally, I am longing for the day I have time to cover the Koinor story on the podcast in great detail. For a lot of British people, it can feel as if Britain is singled out compared to the vast number of nations and peoples worldwide who have engaged in looting, empire, slavery, genocides and tribal warfares. A number of right-wing politicians have claimed much of the criticism strays into Anglophobia. Other commentators point out that if they are expected to be responsible for the evils of ancestors long dead, then they are just as entitled to be praised for the achievements of other ancestors long dead, especially the long political and naval war against slavery. This puts the new monarchy in a very tricky position. As you can clearly see, arguments on both sides are made passionately and strongly held, and everyone will be looking to Charles to see what symbols and what side of the fence he seems to lean on. Much work will also be needed to prepare King William, perhaps in as little as 10 to 20 years' time. Parliament will avoid such debates by long convention. They will continue in the mainstream. Even now, a few protesters have been holding up anti-imperial signs at the various accession events. The lesson Queen Elizabeth seems to have imparted was to maintain studious silence and refuse to debate whenever possible. So Charles is more likely to act with little fanfare rather than having public debates on these big issues. As always, I'm just trying to make you aware of the various views and you can draw your own conclusions if you wish. As Obi-Wan said in Return of the Jedi, 
Luke, you are going to find that many of the truths we cling to depend very greatly upon your point of view. Perhaps even the United Kingdom itself will not last, as Scotland again wrestles with its conflicted desires over independence. England, of all nations in the Union, is unique in not having a National Assembly of its own. The Constitution has started to collapse, and climate change exposes the fragility of the UK's decrepit infrastructure. Lacking real formal power, the monarch can only advise the Prime Minister in public audiences, but the King can create the image and tone of the royal household. It is widely assumed that Charles wants to ruthlessly reduce the size of the royal household, slimming it to only the very core members in the dynastic line and updating many of its obsolete practices. Long committed to environmentalism and fighting climate change, it is likely he will seek to align the monarchy with a progressive environmental conservatism and, for all the woes of modern Britain, its economic decline, its constitutional collapse and its corruption, it has been in these situations and worse before in its long history. Bad times are usually turned around into something good and new. And eventually, if not under Charles, then perhaps in the reign of King William III, we might yet see a new chapter in British history. Whatever your views on the British monarchy and colonialism or imperialism or institutional racism or the Commonwealth, it is certain that the death of Elizabeth is indeed a historical event, almost on the same level as the death of Queen Victoria. Her age has now passed. The private family mourn her death and most of the nation is unified in mourning. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this an interesting and informative show, even if it's not a topic I would normally cover. Take care and bye for now.